0: Hey there guys, I'm Joshua and I'm a fourth year studying a Master of International Relations and I'll be reading the Bible for you today. Um, so you can find the passage on your handout on the inside of it and today's passage is from First, first Corinthians uh, chapter 12, 31b to 14.1 And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy.
1: Thanks, Josh. It'd be helpful to have that page still open. Uh, you can see the passage and uh, the outline opposite. Well, we finally get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great chapter about love. It's been called the most wonderful chapter in the whole Bible. And one of the great advantages of expository preaching, just working through the Bible chapter by chapter, is you finally get to your favourite chapters. Here we are. Uh, I googled top 25 Bible readings at weddings, and guess which one came out number one? 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. I'm nothing. For some, I guess, it just starts our minds and imaginations thinking about that, that romance of life. And walking into the sunset hand in hand with my beloved. Stepping out into the, the uh, fields of tulips with the special him or her. Dreaming of being a prince or a princess. Like uh, Tay-Tay. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is her. But watch you zoom in the finger. But that's Tay-Tay. So she sings her song, love story, and she dreams. She's actually on a uni campus and she meets this sort of nice looking guy and she dreams she's the princess. He's the prince, he's Romeo, she's Juliet. And it's sort of understandable because the topic is love, isn't it? And no one's against love. You're not, are you? You're not against love. Love is great. To be in love is seen as the best, the ultimate experience. And so, of course, love wins. Love trumps everything. Love is the greatest. And that's what Paul actually says in this chapter. Love is the greatest. But before we go all misty-eyed and weak at the knees, we need to listen a little bit more carefully to what Paul actually says. Because he didn't learn about love uh, from Taylor Swift. So I want to start by asking, why is it here at all? Why is this chapter here? It it comes compressed between chapter 12 and chapter 14, which is sort of obvious. It's chapter 13. But listen to how chapter 12 finishes. Eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I'll show you the most excellent way. And then chapter 14 starts. Pursue love or follow the way of love, and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially that you might prophesy. Chapter 13 is just shoved in between. It it must have something to do with gifts and church and prophecy and tongues, which is what chapter 12 and chapter 14 are both about. It's not, in the first instance, about weddings and romance. Well, let's go back and think about what the issues are in this part of the Bible. If you were here last week, we looked at chapter 12. Uh, We saw that the Corinthian church was a place buzzing, buzzing with life and energy. It was a happening place, and most of the people in the church loved it. There was an emphasis on gifts, especially the more spectacular, supernatural gifts like tongues. And they equated those sort of gifts with being really spiritual, with the work of the Spirit. That had led to some tensions within the church, some feeling a bit despised and useless, others feeling superior and self-sufficient. And Paul is pulling his hair out. And he spends these three chapters trying to correct them, get them back on track with regards to church and gifts. And if you were here last week... Uh, We saw that in chapter 12, he makes a number of points. It's sort of like he's gradually trying to turn this ship around, just pull the rudder a little bit over so the ship starts to change direction. Verses 1 to 3, he says the spectacular doesn't prove anything. It's the content that matters. If you say Jesus is Lord, if you believe that in your heart, then that is the work of the Spirit. That is spiritual, not whatever gifts you have. In verses four to six, he says that god 's enabling is much wider than your particular focus on gifts of the spirit. It includes all natural abilities and capacities and even menial labor. In verses seven to eleven of chapter twelve, he says it 's the same spirit behind the great diversity of gifts and capacities, and he gives it as he will, so don 't be competitive with each other and In verses twelve to thirty, he uses this image of the church as the body. In the body, there's all sorts of different organs. They all play different functions. But it's as they bring those different functions that the body is able to work as a body. It's interdependent and it's unified. And in the last 50 years or so, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 has been a very significant chapter in in churches. As we've discovered the ministry of all Christians, every member has gifts and, uh, and are to use those gifts. And so many churches have gone on uh, escapades to try and find your gift. But we saw that chapter 12 finished with this quite this conundrum. Seek the greater gifts. Is that a contradiction? He's just said, all the gifts are needed. How can some be greater? And it's a conundrum. Well, let's look at chapter 13 and we'll actually see what Paul says. It breaks quite easily into three sections. The first section, verses 1 to 3, begins with this idea of without love. Um, uh, that is the necessity of love See, so if I speak in the tongues of men or angels but don't have love I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal if I think into a prophecy, I can fathom all the mysteries but I haven't got love, I'm nothing that is, he talks about the sort of gifts that you might have and you might value, the tongues of angels there's no course at UWA on the tongues of angels, is there? our language department doesn't even know about them, they're pretty esoteric or fathom all mysteries. If you could fathom all mysteries, we could actually close down the university. All research would stop. Faith to move mountains without any civil engineers or dynamite. If I gave away all my possessions. Now, I'm not sure which of those gifts you're most impressed by, but they're impressive, aren't they? If somebody could do those things, you'd think, man, they're spiritual. They're really on the money. I'd love to be like them. But Paul says, no, don't be so hasty. Now, if they haven't got love, no matter what their gifts, it's useless. In fact, he says, you are useless if you don't have love. You're just an annoying noise. You know what happens when a kid gets onto a drum kit? They don't know how to drum. They just make a racket, a cacophony. He says, that's what you are if you've got gifts, but no love. In fact, it's more than useless. It's often very dangerous. I lived in a residential college while I was doing my undergraduate study. Um, And uh, when I moved in, I met a guy who was a second-year psych student. And he was brilliant. He he just understood people to a T. And his psych studies just sharpened all his gifts and capacities. And he used them to seduce every girl who caught his eye. He was a menace. He damaged people left, right and centre. He was gifted with no love. And so as you look at verses 1 to 3, it seems like Paul's saying, use your gifts with love. But I want to question that, and you'll see why in a minute. In the second paragraph, Paul talks about the character of love. What is love like? He doesn't define love. He just describes it. Love is patient. Love is kind. He assumes that, as Christians, his readers will know what he's talking about. And it's helpful to understand the background of this that in the New Testament, the main word that's used for love is a word that was hardly used in that culture, in Greek culture. It was there, but it was almost not used, because it wasn't something that people understood and thought about from day to day. It's the word, if you like a bit of Greek, translated into English, agape. And it expresses for Christians the love of God. Like in 1 John chapter 4, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. See, that sort of love is not sexual desire, it's not romantic attraction, it's not mushy sentimentality, it's not even family affection. It's a commitment to the good of others. A deep, radical, determined commitment to bring good, even at personal cost. The old King James Version actually translated all of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians with the word charity. Because that it captures it. It, it. It's not about romantic love. It's about charity, about giving of yourself for the good of others. A couple of things to notice about this paragraph. When he says love is patient, love is kind, it sort of misses the, the language. Because it's active language. It's verbs for those who, who know grammar. It actually goes, love is patienting. Love is kinding. It's not boasting. Uh, uh, It's not prouding. It's not dishonouring others. It's not self seeking. It's not just a dream. Love does something. And secondly, it's described in a fairly personal way. So you could substitute the word love here for a person, couldn't you? Tim is patient. Tim is kind. Tim doesn't envy. He doesn't boast. He's He's not proud. Well, that doesn't quite fit, does it, if you know me? Let's try this one Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He doesn't envy, he doesn't boast, he's not proud, he doesn't dishonour others, he's not self-seeking. Yet that fits, doesn't it? Fits brilliantly. Fits perfectly. Now, if this is about how to use your gifts, it's easy to see that gifts are quite useless without love. Imagine you have the gift of hospitality. You're really good at cooking for people, welcoming them into your home. But, yeah, if you use it with love, it's going to be much better, isn't it? If you're not boastful, if you don't invite people home and then you just tell them how great the meal is for the whole time you serve the meal. If you don't keep a record of wrongs, how many crumbs they spill on the tablecloth and make you wash it up. That would be really helpful as a way of expressing hospitality. But do you notice how negative this paragraph is? First two start positive, patient, kind, but then it all becomes very negative. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not. Why would he say that? It's not proud. I would have said it's humble. But instead he keeps saying, what it's not. Why does he do that? And then the third paragraph where he says the greatest is love, about the superiority of love. Love never fails, verse 8. Where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Tongues, they'll be stilled. Knowledge, it'll pass away. Uh, But verse 13, these things remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. So he contrasts gifts, prophecies and tongues and knowledge, all the things he's talked about in verses 1 to 3, with love. And he says love wins hands down every time. All these gifts, they're going to cease when perfection comes. They've got to use by date. One day there'll be no need for them whatsoever. They'll be of no use at all to anybody. The fact that I can fathom all, all knowledge, I've got great understanding. Well, when Jesus returns, I'll have complete understanding. I won't need you to tell me anything. I, I, I won't be able to tell you anything. I won't be able to teach you anything. We won't need prophecy. We won't need teachers. Of course, we'll all know. But we will still have love. Because that's exactly what the age to come is going to be like. Love never fails. It never runs out. It never comes to an end. It's the permanent characteristic of the age to come. So the age to come is pictured in the Bible, not as splendid isolation where you don't have to hassle with other people. It's a city. Where we're together. And it'll be brilliant because you will love and I will love just like Jesus loves. I won't need to be afraid of you anymore. You won't need to be afraid of me. We'll live together with joy and harmony and and it'll be brilliant. And love will be the dominant characteristic. The true and permanent experience of God's spirit of his supernatural work. But notice in this paragraph, there's the contrast. It's the superiority of love Over gifts, as if there's a sort of competition between them, as if you have to choose between gifts or love. Now, what's his point then? It can't be use your gifts with love. You wouldn't contrast them then, would you? See, if I want to say to you, drive with care, I wouldn't say to you, now, I want you to choose between being careful and driving. (laughs) You just wouldn't do it, if that's all I'm saying. No, he's saying something much more profound than use your gifts with love. So what is his point? Well, the easiest way to pick it up is to see how he frames it. He says at the end of chapter 12, I want to show you the most excellent way, the way par excellence, the the best way by far. And then he starts to talk about love, about the way of love. And in doing so, he's contrasting the Corinthian way and God's way. See, the Corinthian way is the way of gifts. That's how, how they start. As they think about church, as they think about themselves and their own value and their status. They start with their own gifts. But God's way doesn't start there. It starts with love. And so where does that lead you? Well, if you follow the way of gifts, you start with yourself, don't you? You look at me and say, what gifts have I got? What can I do? What would I like to do? What do I enjoy doing? But the way of love doesn't start with me, it starts with others. I wonder what they need. What would be good for them? What, what would be helpful for them? So it's sort of like you're going to cook. There's two ways to decide what to cook. You go into the pantry and work out what ingredients you've got, and whatever ingredients are there, you just make something. Or you can think about the people who are coming to eat it and ask, I wonder what they'd like. Now, which is better? The second, isn't it? It'll at least get eaten. It'll be enjoyed. It'll be appreciated. It'll do something worthwhile. You just cook whatever's in the pantry. It's probably inedible. It won't help anybody. So, if you think about the results, what's the results of the Corinthian way of starting with my gifts? Well, it's not hard to imagine, is it? You get jealous of those who are more gifted than you are. Or, if you're more gifted than them, you get puffed up with pride because I'm better than them. You get impatient if your gifts aren't being used, if nobody's giving you an opportunity to get out there and use your gifts. And as you think about what ministry you might have in your church, well, I want to use my gifts. So I'll ask the question, well, what can I do that other people can't do? That's what I'll focus on. That's where i specialise. So I won't do the mundane that all of us can do. And I'll probably find my own little niche, my little rut. I'll find where I can use my gifts and I'll protect that position, whether that's playing, playing the piano or preaching or whatever it might be. And I'll seek to be independent. If others don't like me using my gifts, if they don't appreciate my gifts, well, I'll keep doing it anyway. And I just find my own little clique that likes those things and we'll do it together. Go hang the rest. Can you see why verses 4 to 7 is so negative there? Because he's actually trying to counter the Corinthian way. Love is patient and kind. It's not proud. It's not boastful. It doesn't envy. It doesn't insist on its own way. Because that's where the approach of gifts goes. But think about the other way. God's way. The way of love. What are the results then? Well, when I see other people more gifted than me, I rejoice in that. Because as I look around at what the needs are, there's many more needs than I could ever meet. I need all of us working at it, so much more than I could ever do. And I'm patient if I'm not being asked to use my gifts and and, and invited to do things, because there's always more to do than I've got time to do. And I won't insist on using my gift. I might be terrific at the ukulele, but if that's not going to help things very much, well, that's okay, I, I, I won't insist on using it. I'll be willing to do anything that helps. I won't just say, no, I only do the things I'm a specialist at. So I'm happy to wash up and stack the chairs. It doesn't have to be my gift. And it leads to a wonderful interdependence and unity. Instead of being a threat to each other, we rejoice in each other's gift. We start to work together as a team. You see, when Paul says, I want to show you the most excellent way, he's not just adding another little correction to the direction of this ship. No, this is a revolution. This is shoving it into reverse and saying, let's go back the other way. ...because the church in Corinth is heading the wrong way. He's saying, stop, the way of gifts is a shipwreck happening. The way of love, though, will be a terrific revolution. Let's start again. But why this insistence on the way of love as that's the way to go? Well, if we zoom out a little bit for a minute out of this chapter... ...and ask questions like, what's Christianity really about? What is God like? Guess what? The answer happens to be love, isn't it? I mean, no, other religions aren't like that. It's about duty or, or religious observance. But at the heart of Christianity is love. <laughs> that's what you see in Jesus, isn't it? If you're in a first year group, you're probably familiar with this verse from Romans 5. God demonstrates his own love for this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So That's the sort of love Paul's talking about. Motivated by our need, he saw us as helpless sinners. It's a commitment to our good, even at great, great cost. And it's active. It's not just a a nice thought. It's not just words, I love you. He did something. He sent his son to die for us. If you're in other useful groups, this might be more familiar. 1 John chapter 4. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever doesn't love does not know God. Because God is love. The very essence, the nature of God is love. You prick God and he bleeds love. It drives everything that he does. So if you're born of God, if his seed is in you, you'll love. That'll become who you are. He imparts his nature to us. And we know this love in Jesus, don't we? He died for us. There can't be a clearer demonstration of God's commitment to our good to our welfare. If you don't know about this love, can I say to you, please find out about it. It's a fantastic thing. And to not know about it and not embrace it is a pretty silly thing. Ask a Christian friend. I'm sure they can tell you more about the love of God. You see, Jesus didn't say to himself, I wonder what gifts I've got. I'll do a quick inventory of my gifts. And he came up actually that his his best gift was, the thing he was most terrific at was being crucified. You reckon? Ah, that's not how he thought. And if he did an adventure of his gifts, he's got many more than you've got, that's for sure. If he wanted to fulfil his potential and use all his gifts, he could have spent eternity using all those fantastic gifts of power. But instead, he loved. He followed the way of love. He saw our need and he gave himself for us. He wasn't his gift, but he loved. And Jesus said to his disciples, They'll know you're my disciples because you love each other, not because you're very gifted, but because you love. Because that's what Jesus is like. So you know who's a, who's a follower of Justin Langer because they got grit. You know who's a follower of El McPherson because they got beautiful long legs. But you know who's a follower of Jesus because they love, especially at church when they gather with other followers of Jesus. And in chapter 14, he applies this. This is what we'll look at next week. We'll see how the way of love actually works out. It doesn't render gifts superfluous, but it has a big impact on which gifts you want, which gifts you want to use. Some gifts are greater than others. Not more spectacular, but more useful. That's next week. So let's get back to this chapter. What we need is love. This chapter is actually a critical, it's a central uh, chapter in understanding What Paul thinks about church and ministry, about spirituality and Christian living, and at the very core of it is love. If you're part of a church, and I hope you are, then your church needs your love much more than it needs your gifts. Do you want God to use you? Do you want to be involved in the life of church and see you? Great. Then can I encourage you, urge you to follow the way of love. And love starts by looking out. Love starts with looking at, becoming sensitive to, compassionate towards the needs of others. What's good for them? Noticing and wanting and, and wondering, can I help? I wonder what needs doing. It doesn't start with looking in. What are my gifts? What can I do? We find this so unnatural, I think. It's partly our hearts, isn't it? We're naturally, we're self-focused and self-protective as just us. But it's also our culture and our context. So the university is all about you, isn't it? At least in your experience of it. You come here to increase your knowledge and capacity, your giftedness. You get training and qualifications and talents that hold the promise of the life that you want. And you make friends, you network with people in the hope that it'll open doors to a successful career. And they'll treat you with respect and, and the status that you crave. And, and we take that same thing back into our churches. It's a place I can showcase my gifts. I can win respect. I can network and get to know the people who will help me somewhere. What says, no. Follow the way of love. That revolution that begins in our hearts with a commitment like God to the good of us. Has that happened for you? When you went to church last time, did you go thinking, I wonder how I can help? What can I contribute? Is there someone I can encourage? Was love your way or not? If yes, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you understood what Paul's about, that you're like your Heavenly Father. If not, can I encourage you to change? It is about a revolution. It's about turning around, going in a different direction. If all that feels too vague and unclear, let me give you a very simple way to start. Set yourself a project. In your church, in your CU, maybe in your small group, just randomly choose one person and decide to love them to death. Just love them. Pray for them. Look out for them. Encourage them. Put yourself into their shoes. See what life is like. And see how you can serve them, how you can follow the way of love, which is the way of Jesus.